Well, would you pray with me for a moment and then we'll get into Isaiah. Our Father, we come this evening thanking you for the soon coming of Jesus Christ. And that is our focus tonight as we think upon the return of our King. We think upon the return of the Lord to the earth, which he rightly owns. And so we pray that our thoughts would be drawn heavenward, even as the thoughts of Christ are drawn toward the earth and his soon coming, his return. And so, Lord, I pray that the text that we examine tonight would encourage our hearts to think more long-range, to think upon the things that are coming, to be encouraged by the coming of Christ, to be encouraged by the fact that the tears and the pain and the anguish that we endure now will, will be gone, and there will be a day of great victory, a day of shouting and singing and dancing and joy and fellowship that is absolutely unprecedented. And so might you draw our hearts this evening, Lord, to that time. Would you give us comfort in our current days because of the days that are to come? We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, beginning in Isaiah 56, we've been examining how to pray kingdom prayers. How to pray kingdom prayers. And our premise is the fact that Jesus modeled for us how to pray and he said to pray this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that far from just being called to pray about my own needs, to pray about life circumstances, to pray about right now, we're to pray eschatological prayers, end times prayers, prayers that look far ahead that aren't just personally about me. They're about the the grand scheme of God's redemptive plan. And so far we have talked about praying for the coming division of mankind We've talked about praying for repentance and mercy. We have prayed for the golden age of Israel. We have prayed for the king's agenda. And my hope for you is that you will actually inculcate this into your prayer life, that you will be praying kingdom prayers and not just learning facts. But tonight we want to pray for the king's return. We want to pray for his return. And we might say, well, that's already going to happen. Why would we pray for something that's already predicted in scripture that we know is going to happen? Well, Jesus said, to pray, your kingdom come. And for the kingdom to come, the king has to come. And so it's reasonable for us to pray for the return of Christ. Now, as we've worked our way through Isaiah over the last couple of years, and we've taken breaks here and there, it's been very apparent that there are certain truths in this book that God is so concerned that we understand that he he repeats himself, and he repeats these continually in the book. As a matter of fact, for me, as your pastor studying Isaiah, I found as we get to this section of the book that it's just, it's its own commentary. That what we've learned in Isaiah in chapters 1 through 10 and 11 through 20 and so forth really give us comment toward the end here that makes the book easier and easier to interpret and to understand as you get to the end, which means that the Word of God has done its job. It has taught us. Uh, For example, certain themes that we see over and over again, even if you're one who doesn't believe in the literal future actual restoration of Israel as a nation, you can't read Isaiah without wrestling with the fact that that topic is everywhere. I mean, it's like playing dodgeball and there's hundreds of balls coming at you and you cannot get away from it. Another theme we see, the city of Jerusalem, everything from predicting her destruction to predicting her eventual restoration. Jerusalem cannot be seen as just some sort of metaphorical symbol in Isaiah. It is over and over again, just right in our face. 
we see the theme of the judgment of God's people, the theme of the restoration of God's people. And every time you have judgment, you have restoration. We see theological topics such as grace and faith and justification, sanctification. Reading Isaiah is very much like reading the New Testament. And of course, we have seen over and over again the person of Jesus Christ. He is presented as a servant. He's presented as a savior. And tonight he's presented as a sovereign, as a king. We've seen over and over again the coming kingdom in which King Jesus reigns on earth, brings about a perfect theocracy as the Prince of Peace. And so tonight isn't going to be much different. We're going to see just about all of those themes yet again. But I will say this, it's not my duty to rescue you from the repetitiveness of Scripture. It's there for a reason. It's my duty to emphasize what God emphasizes. And so repetition is there because it was God's plan for it. One of the reasons I believe so wholeheartedly in the continuous exposition of a Bible book is we get the level of emphasis that God intended, that I'm not editing God. I'm not saying, well, this is repeated a hundred times. I think I'll just do it twice. And if God wants to repeat something a hundred times in a hundred different ways, then we need to hear it a hundred times in a hundred different ways. That was his plan. We want these truths to be such a, a fabric of who you are, of your personhood, that you're saturated with them and you're thinking about them. And why is this important? Because when you're in the worst moments of your life, when you are in the back of an ambulance, when you are deathly ill, when you are undergoing trials and stress, we want the truths of a coming kingdom and a coming savior to just flood your mind automatically. That it's just without even thinking, you begin thinking about the future glory that is coming to us. And tonight, our exhortation together is to pray for the king's return. And so we're going to look at Isaiah 62 and part of 63 to help us consider that exhortation. Now, some of you may be well-versed in end times chronology. If you've been at Grace Bible Church for any period of time, you, you have somewhat of a grid to work with. But maybe some of you are newer in the faith. And I felt like tonight, because of the, the scope of what we're looking at, I think this is a good time to kind of back up and review a little bit. We are currently in the church age. This is the age in which God is bringing many Gentiles, many non-Jews, and some Jews into the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the time when God is, is fulfilling his promise to create kingdom citizens. And so the kingdom is being filled, not visibly, we, we don't see it. Nobody would walk into Grace Bible Church tonight and say, oh, well, it looks like you guys are about to take over the earth. No, we, it doesn't look like that. But for 2,000 years, believers have been meeting, dying, and going to heaven and being gathered and gathered and gathered such that there is, a, there is a kingdom waiting to be brought to earth. But the very next thing that's going to happen in, in prophetic history is what theologians call the rapture of the church, the, the taking up of all the true believers. Simultaneously, the resurrection of the dead in Christ will occur. Those two happen together. We might even call it the rapture resurrection event. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 describes this event. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, Paul is still hoping that he would be there for the rapture. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. And so at that point, 
If you're worried about the judgment of God falling on earth and you're going to be here for it, you don't have to worry about that. We won't be here. You won't be here. But at that time, we'll commence what we call the tribulation period. The church of Jesus Christ has been removed from the earth and then begins a a seven-year period of time. It is a literal seven years. A world ruler will emerge who will rule with peace and diplomacy. The world will love him. As a matter of fact, Daniel chapter 9 says that Israel will love him so much that that they'll make a seven-year treaty, a covenant with this man, and it'll restore for the first time in history restore Israel to full diplomatic honor in the world and restores even the Old Testament sacrificial system. That there will be the sense that that this kingdom has finally come and this man will be viewed as the Messiah. But three and a half years into this treaty, this man, the Bible calls him the Antichrist, he'll break the treaty and he'll take over and he will go from being a peaceful, kind diplomat to being a dictatorial tyrant. At that time, some will come to faith in Jesus Christ once again. And as a matter of fact, I can make the case that during this seven-year period, more people will come to faith in Christ than ever did in the entire church age. There will be an avalanche. So yes, the church is gone. We are in heaven with the Lord. But once again, the grace of God begins to be seen on the earth. What will happen to them though? Well, Antichrist will begin to murder them. Humanity will be forced to make a choice. You will take the mark of Antichrist, the mark of the beast, as Revelation calls it, in order to be able to buy and sell, to participate in the economy of the earth. But you must worship Antichrist if you're to do this. And so true believers in Christ will not take this mark, and as a result, they'll be cut out of the world's economy, and Antichrist will begin murdering them worldwide. Revelation 6 calls them tribulation saints, tribulation martyrs, Antichrist will also have a huge hatred for the Jews and he will subjugate them unless they will serve him. Now many of the Jews will run and they will hide themselves in the wilderness for three and a half years. Revelation twelve six says this and they'll be protected by God himself because God is setting up now. What the, this is what the book of Revelation is about. He is setting up to restore his chosen nation. These Jews will come to faith in Christ Zechariah 12.10 says this, and now the kingdom citizenry of a new Israel is simply awaiting rescue. At the very same time, at this three and a half year mark, God himself will begin unleashing his wrath on the earth in a way that has never been seen before. Daniel 12 says this, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since a nation till that time, since was a nation till that time. In Revelation 6, we see the beginning of this three and a half year period and we begin to see this unfolding. And there is pictured a scroll, which is the title deed to the earth. And it's opened in heaven and it shows that the earth belongs to Christ, that he owns the earth. He is the creator, he is the owner. And this deed is sealed with seven seals. Six of them are judgments of God. The first seal is open. We see Antichrist coming to power. That is the first judgment of God. The second seal is opened. We see world war on on a massive scale. Third, we see famine all over the earth such that many, many are dying. The fourth seal is opened. 25% of humanity, today that would be 2 billion people, are wiped out by disease and crime and now even wild beasts. And that tells you that the earth is becoming a difficult place to live. 
The fifth seal is opened, and this shows that all the believers in Christ who have already been killed for their faith during the first three and a half years, that God will recompense the wicked on earth for this, that that is going to be a judgment call. The sixth seal is opened, and we see a great earthquake which darkens the sun and the moon. And this is not just a little earthquake that you see on Fox News or whatever. This is so massive that mountains are going to sink, islands are going to sink under the level of the ocean. And so it will literally change the topography of the earth. At this point, Revelation 6 says that the kings of the earth will begin to understand that they are under judgment and they will cry out not for mercy from Christ, but they will cry out to be hidden from Christ. They run from him. And then the seventh seal is opened and you think, okay, maybe it's over. Maybe the wrath of God will abate now. Well, the seventh seal, when you open it, you simply find seven more judgments in the seventh seal. And Revelation 8 and 9 calls these trumpet judgments. The first trumpet sounds and you have hail and fire that burns a third of the earth. The second trumpet sounds and what is likely a a meteor is described as a great mountain hits the ocean. All of the movies you've ever seen about this are true. And if I could draw you to the sovereignty of God in his perfect timing, that meteor is headed toward earth now. It is coming. The third trumpet judgment, the third trumpet sounds something different than the great mountain, something that's not the great mountain called a great star blazing like a torch falls to the earth and poisons a third of the fresh water on earth. By the way, when the great mountain, the meteor hits, it kills a third of the sea creatures and sinks a third of all the ships on the ocean at that moment. Then you get to the fourth trumpet sounding. Now the sun and the moon are darkened by one third. We're not told why or how, but it just is. The fifth trumpet sounds and you have the release of countless millions of demons currently held in a, in a captive state. They're released to torment with physical pain only the unbelievers on the earth for a period of months. And here's the catch. They won't let them die. That the unbelievers will be tormented but they won't die. Sixth, the trumpet sounds And we have another sort of demonic army. And this time, they're not coming to torment. They're coming to kill. And they are given power to kill one-third of mankind. Now, if you do the math, by this point, one-half of humanity has been killed from the beginning. And so then you have the seventh trumpet. Maybe it's over. No, the seventh trumpet sounds. And now you have seven more judgments. The bowls of wrath. And by the way, there are also seven thunder judgments that the book of Revelation says, those are so bad, we're not even gonna tell you what they are. That's off to the side. But the seven bowls of wrath, the first bowl beginning in Revelation 16, we have painful sores on all those who would worship the beast, who would worship the Antichrist. The second bowl is, is poured out on the earth and this is the death of now every sea creature. Now you're beginning to see the fabric of the earth literally coming apart. The third bowl is poured out and you have the poisoning of all freshwater sources by turning them to blood. And you can tell that the end is very, very close now. And and the bowl judgments just seem to come one after another after another. The fourth bowl is poured out. Now the sun intensifies in heat so that people are scorched. And how do they respond? Revelation 16, 9 says, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. That's their response. The fifth bowl immediately comes and now the kingdom of Antichrist, apparently all of his sovereign territory on earth is plunged into darkness. 
Now, if you've read the book of Exodus, some of this is sounding a little bit familiar to you. God is never one to take a really good plague and only use it once. If it worked once, he can use it again. And so we see this continuity that God is the judge of the earth. And then the sixth bowl is poured out, and this one is unusual. It doesn't seem to do anything except one little thing. There probably nobody would even know this at first, and that is that the river Euphrates stops flowing and it dries up. Why is that important? Because for any invading army to make it from the east to the west in the Middle East, you have to dry up the Euphrates River and it dries up. And what does Revelation tell us? It is to prepare the way for massive invading armies to come toward Israel. It may be that they're rebelling against Antichrist. We don't know. We're not told. In any case, a massive battle is on the horizon, one of proportions that we've never seen. And then you have the seventh bowl that's poured out, the great city, which is Jerusalem. It's called the great city three times in Revelation. It falls. It's split in three parts. There's, there, the city is essentially starting to come apart. The capital city of Antichrist, New Babylon, also falls. And at the same time, just to make things worse, 100-pound hailstones are hitting the earth and still people are cursing God. And as if that isn't bad enough, while all this is happening, the great armies of earth are coming together. Revelation 16, verse 16 says, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, Armageddon is connected to Megiddo, the ancient city on the north side of the ridge of Mount Carmel. And it's been the site of major battles for thousands of years, actually. The Hebrew word just means Mount of Megiddo. There is no such mountains. It could be speaking of foothills, but Megiddo is an accurate geographical uh, description. We know right where that is. Going all the way back to 1468 BC, Pharaoh Thutmose III rather, fought a massive battle there all the way to 1917 when Lord Allenby fought a battle at the Valley of Megiddo. Great battles took place there, even in the Bible. Judges 5 records a battle taking place at Megiddo. And this will be the ultimate clash between God and Satan, between Christ and the Antichrist, between good and evil. And quite literally, the battle of the ages will begin. Apparently, first against one another. And we don't know exactly the details about that. But eventually, there will be a chance for them to fight a common enemy. They will see that they have a bigger fish to fry. Something is going to change this battle. By now, the earth is wrecked. Humanity has gone crazy. God has unleashed the fury of his anger against sinful mankind. So this battle is set to begin. But now, let's fast forward to a slightly later time. A time when the sound of clashing armies and the screams of the dying and the rumbling of hailstones hitting the earth and the cries of horror at what is rightly called the end of the world, when those sounds are gone, you don't hear them anymore. It's replaced by new sounds, sounds of reconstruction, sounds of singing, of laughter, of reunion. Why are these sounds here now? Because the king has returned. Christ is on earth. So let's fast forward a little bit and then work our way back to the end of this great battle for the earth. What I'd like to do tonight in Isaiah 62 and 63 is just give you four highlights of the king's return. These are highlights to pray for, highlights for us to wish for, to think about. 
I hope my prayer for you is that as you consider what is coming in the future, that you think about these things with great joy and great anticipation. The first highlight of the king's return is the city of the king. The city of the king. I told you that Isaiah speaks of Jerusalem over and over again, and we're not going to rescue ourselves from going through that as often as, as God wants us to. God's going to issue a promise. It's an oath. He is swearing, essentially, that he will never forget the capital city of his redemptive plan on earth. It has been rightly said that Jerusalem is the capital city of God's plan. It is the capital city of the earth, and it's the capital city of the Bible. And he says he'll never forget. Isaiah 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake, that that is one of the hills in Jerusalem, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Now here, the, the righteousness of Israel, of Jerusalem, this should be understood as the vindication of Israel before the world, that she really is God's chosen nation. There are very few people on earth who believe that anymore as evidenced by the fact that Israel has to try to keep all of her neighbors from trying to blow her off the map at any time. 79, Psalm 79, rather, asks a question in verse 10. And it's a question in response to the fact that Israel is the most pounded, the most invaded, the, the greatest suffering nation on earth. They've been decimated. They've been punished countless times for their faithfulness, faithlessness, rather. And here's the question. Why should the nation say, where is their God? In other words, this is a call to God to restore Israel, not for Israel's sake, but for his own name's sake. Why would you choose a nation and just let it get decimated over and over and over again? That just tears down the honor of the Lord. And the prayer of the rest of that verse is, let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servant be known among the nations before our eyes. In other words, Let vindication come. Let the world see that we are the chosen ones. Well, Isaiah 62 verse 1 is God's answer that your salvation, your rescue will be so great that it'll be like a torch visible to the whole world. And now, far from being the mocked little nation that everyone wants to destroy, Israel, represented by Jerusalem, now becomes the central focus of the earth. We see in verse 2, Here's the answer to that prayer. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Like Jacob was renamed Israel, so Israel will receive a new name, not necessarily replacing the name of Israel, but just adding to it a name that will be appropriate to her new stature as a regenerated and holy people who have now turned to Christ. You know, it's interesting that Israel previously had brought dishonor and disgrace to the Lord. In fact, Ezekiel lamented this disgrace. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 17. God is talking to Ezekiel and he calls him son of man. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. 
But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name in that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. They embarrassed God. They brought humiliation to his name. This is why our obedience, our submission to God, our submission to the law of Christ as found in the New Testament is so vital. Because when we disobey, we bring reproach and embarrassment to God who saved us. Ultimately, I think it's safe to say that a lack of fire and lack of drive, a lack of desire to obey the Lord indicates a low view of God, a low view of his reputation. We tell this to people in counseling all the time, obey the Lord if for no other reason to honor his name, to bring him honor. But now after Israel has denigrated the name of God, God can boast in a saved Israel, a redeemed Israel. And we see this boast in verse three. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of of your God. God is so proud of her that he would wear her as a crown. This is my crown. This is the the best that I have. And as the returned king is setting up his kingdom, the centrality of, of Jerusalem becomes very apparent to us. The Lord will appoint, and this is so interesting, he'll appoint prayer warriors to continually pray for the completion of God's redemptive plan to guard the city of Jerusalem, even against future spiritual enemies as the earth becomes repopulated once again. Look at this and we'll skip ahead to verses six and seven. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Did you catch that? The command from the king is to say, get on the walls and don't stop praying. Do not give God rest until the kingdom is completely come, until everything is consummated. This is a side issue for another day, but I take that to mean that those men And women most likely will be on that wall in shifts for 1,000 years. That they will be praying continually. I love that. Don't give God rest until the kingdom has come. It's very interesting that even at the return of Christ, now prayer will be stepped up more than ever. Christ doesn't say, okay, everybody can quit praying now. I'm here. At the beginning of the millennial kingdom, there's still kingdom prayers being offered up 24-7 by an army of prayer warriors on the walls of Jerusalem. How comforting this would be to the city. Wouldn't you like it if your home was surrounded by an army of prayer warriors praying for you continually? Wouldn't that be amazing? The city which has so many times been invaded, twice completely destroyed, and which has so many times yielded to deadly enemies, The Lord of power swears this will never happen again. Verses eight and nine. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. And what's one of the requests that these prayer warriors will be making of God? It is to return all his scattered people. 
And now we see a picture of road construction, of renovation, of, of new projects, of clearing the rubble left over from the Great Tribulation. In verse 10, we see this admonition, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. The scattered people of God, those who have survived the Great Tribulation in particular, are being gathered home. Don't succumb to the temptation to just instantly say that this is somehow symbolic, that when the king says, build up the highway, that he's really talking about something spiritual. I don't think he is. He says, clear it of stones. What does that mean? Well, it means to move the rocks. It's really simple. And he says this, lift up a signal over the peoples. It literally means a flag or a banner. Now, we don't know precisely what that is, but it's some sort of way to guide people home. Listen, after everything that's happened on the earth, from the, the seal judgments to the trumpet judgments to the bowl judgments, the thunder judgments, I, we might be reduced to flag waving. I mean, we might not have the, the capability to do anything except raise a flag on the tallest tree you can find so that people can find their way home. And I suspect that the Gentile believers will be in on this action as well. Jerusalem will be the place to be. We've already seen in Isaiah that one of the job of the Gentiles will be to help the Jews get home and they'll do so with joy and with gladness. And what should they expect to find when they arrive in Jerusalem? Well, this is the second highlight of the king's return. They should expect to find the compensation of the king. There's the city of the king and now there's the compensation of the king. Verse 11 Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. He says in verse 11, your salvation comes. This is a very interesting way to phrase this. This is a, personification of the idea of salvation in other words that salvation has come when a person has come that when Jesus Christ arrives the salvation of the nation is there and what delightful joy will be happening day after day after day when saved Jews who have believed in Christ are arriving in the city and they're seeing Jesus their Messiah and what is he doing he's handing out reward he's handing out recompense verse 12 He affirms that they are now honored. They are not dishonored any longer. They're called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. What is this recompense? Well, this very well could be simply the financial means to set up for endless prosperity in this thousand-year kingdom. And this sounds very, very familiar to us. If you followed along as I read verse 11, something in your mind said this. I've seen this somewhere. Well, you're right. Revelation 22, verse 12, last chapter of the Bible, Jesus Christ is speaking. And he says, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Of course, we should understand this to mean that Christ will repay the wicked for what they have done, but also Christ will repay the saved, as it were, for their deeds done in faithfulness. Why would it be important that the Lord honors these Jews who have survived the great tribulation and come to faith in Christ? Because they stood for the Lord. Many of them will be gathered from a wilderness hiding place that they were in for three and a half years, according to Revelation 12. They stood for the Lord even in the face of persecution, having to run for their lives. And so Christ comes with compensation. 
They might arrive in poverty, but they will leave with wealth. They will be set up for a thousand years. Now, this certainly could be spiritual reward of some kind, but in the context of setting up a new kingdom, it makes sense that this is simply a physical reward. And there is a precedent for this. In Luke 19, Jesus tells the parable of the talents or the parable of the minas. And in this parable, those who are faithful to the Lord are given cities to rule over. They're given cities to be responsible for. So the compensation of the king is part of the highlight of the king's return. There's the city of the king, the compensation of the king. There's a third highlight. We might call this the celebration of the king. The celebration of the king. Not the celebration about the king, but the celebration by the king. In the days of her humiliation and degradation, Jerusalem was given nicknames. Jerusalem was given nicknames, names such as the forsaken one, the desolate one, but no more. Now the king celebrates like a groom receiving her bride. Chapter 62, verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married Now there are new nicknames. Instead of Azubah, forsaken, now Hefzibah, my delight is in her. Instead of Shemama, desolate, now Beulah, married. There's a change. And the Lord delights in her. And it literally means to take pleasure, to be positively inclined, to look with delight on someone. And here's the promise to Israel of what the coming Messiah will do. He will celebrate his reunion with his people. The very one, the very same person, incidentally, in the same body in which he was resurrected and currently now is in heaven. The very one who cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. The same one says in verse 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is the imagery of Jerusalem as a bride. This is the imagery that says God is essentially marrying his people. By the way, this imagery of Jerusalem as a bride, this continues on into the final state after the millennial kingdom. Revelation 21 verse 2 says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, this is a new one, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a what? As a bride adorned for her husband. Now I've had the privilege of officiating over the marrying of many of you, some of you sitting in this room, and I tell you, every one of you men, when you're finally married, nobody can wipe the grin off your face. It's, and that's at the point I always tell the couple, at that point, I become irrelevant. You don't even know I exist anymore because you're just ecstatic. Well, Zephaniah 3 speaks of the time when Christ returns. Zephaniah 3.17, this is one of my favorite verses in the, in the entire Bible. The Lord your God is in your midst. This is the King. This is Messiah. This is Jesus Christ. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is the celebration of the king. He will rejoice. It means to have a feeling of extreme excitement and enjoyment. How is he going to rejoice? With gladness. It means with merriment, with jubilation, with happiness. 
And and interestingly, kind of a contrast, it says, he will quiet you by his love. He's assuring, he's giving comfort that no more will the enemies of God's people ever threaten her, ever again. No more will sin ever be able to conquer. No more will we ever struggle with our sin nature. And it says that he will exalt over you. It means to celebrate and get this, if you can picture this, it can include the idea of dancing a jig of joy. And how will he exult with loud singing? It, it can mean a cry of jubilation. It can mean a, a musical song. Considering that Jesus is recorded as singing numerous times in the New Testament, we shouldn't be surprised by this. What I'm trying to tell you is don't picture Jesus Christ returning to the earth in some sort of somber parade. He's coming to literally sing and dance over his people because the only person happier about the coming kingdom than you is him. He is happier to see you than you will be to see him. And that's phenomenal because there's nothing in you to make God happy. Nothing. But because he has poured his grace on you, because he has poured his love on you, because he has invested literally his life in you to see the consummation of his plan and to see a perfected version of you will bring the Savior such joy that he will sing and dance over his beloved. That's worth thinking about. That's worth remembering. So it's key for us to remember that when we meet Christ, when we're greeted by him, there will be mutual delight, mutual joy. Jesus Christ is the father in the parable of the prodigal son as recorded in Luke 15, verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. How the king is going to celebrate over you. You will be united with him. He will be united with you just like a groom is excited to finally be with his wife. But how do we get to this point? You remember we left the battle of Armageddon. It was about to go and then we stopped at the end of the great tribulation being set up now the biggest conflict in human history. Just for comparison, by the way, the largest single invasion in human history is generally considered to be the June 6, 1944 D-Day invasion of the beaches of Normandy. France, this included a section of about 50 miles of beaches. And it wasn't even all of it. It was just divided into five parts. 50 miles of beaches, just for comparison. According to Revelation 14, the battle of Armageddon will be so intense that it will encompass the entire nation of Israel and the land will literally have human blood splattered for 200 miles. It'll be essentially four times or more bigger than the largest invasion in human history. Now, how is that going to happen? How do we get from a rebellious antichrist-ruled earth to the city of the king, the compensation of the king, the celebration of the king? Well, this is the fourth highlight of the king's return, and it really happens before the first three, and that is the conquest of the king. The conquest of the king. And now we have a, we have a mystery character riding into Jerusalem. He's a man wearing red, but he's dressed like a conquering general, with his army behind him. We see him in chapter 63, verse one. The question is asked, who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. He's coming from Edom. It means red. His garments are from Basra. It means vintage, the place where grapes are trodden. 
And so he comes from red wearing red. But also, Edom has been the historic enemy of Israel, so this man is coming from having just destroyed Israel's enemies. So who is this? Well, the one who it is answers, it is the king. The end of verse 1, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. He's speaking in righteousness. What is this speaking of? Well, other places in Scripture tells us that at the return of Christ, he comes, as it were, with a sword coming out of his mouth. What does this mean? It's just a symbolic way of saying that when he speaks words, they're words of destruction. Zechariah 14, 12 says that Christ, with a word, will rot the flesh of his enemies so that their flesh comes off their bones, their eyeballs melt, and it happens so fast that they're still standing up. That by the time they're dead, they're not even off their feet yet. Then there's another question that's asked in verse 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? That the one who is squishing the grapes gets his clothes all red. Why are they like that? And the Lord Jesus Christ himself answers in verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. The king uses the imagery of judgment, the treading of the winepress, the crushing of his enemies. And he'll do this with no human assistance. It is just him. Now, yes, the armies of heaven will be with him, according to Revelation 19. But he is the judge. He is the executioner. Verse 5, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. That ultimately, King Jesus, in invading the earth, he's not going to turn around and say, okay, guys, we need to plan. You're going to go down this way. You'll go this way. You'll go this way. Hopefully, if things go well over here, then over here, you can join us and help. The armies of heaven will ride basically to be an audience for what Christ does all by himself. Book of Job records the fact that God created angels for a first reason, and that was to watch him create everything else. And now we'll see that the angels and the armies of heaven, which will include us, by the way, will be there simply to watch his work of conquest. And the blood of his enemies that's been spattered on his kingly robe declares his victory. Now, I don't know about you, but that excites my heart a little bit because this sounds very familiar. Sounds very familiar. I told you that Isaiah very often reads like the New Testament. Why? Because sometimes the New Testament simply quotes Isaiah. Revelation 19 records the time before this moment. The time when the king is in heaven and he's mounting his white horse, as it were, and he's getting ready to return to earth. And he's so confident in his coming victory that Revelation 19, you ready for this? pictures Jesus Christ as having already won the battle that hasn't been fought yet. Revelation 19, verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. The flame of fire in his eyes, that's the fire of judgment. The many diadems, these are crowns. Why is he wearing so many crowns? Well, he is at least symbolically wearing the crowns of every nation on earth before he conquers them. He's saying, I'll take that, I'll take that, I'll take that. Revelation 19, verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. 
And the name by which he is called is the word of God. He's already dressed in clothing, dipped in the blood of his enemies that he hasn't even killed yet. He is the word of God. This is the same word of God made flesh, identified in John 1 as Jesus Christ. Revelation 19 continues, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's not speaking of his kingship on earth. When he says he'll rule them, it means that he will crush them with a rod of iron. He will, here it is, tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is in your face. This is confidence. And this is what the Bible has been foretelling for century after century. This is what the prophet Joel calls the day of the Lord. Joel 1.15, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Revelation 14 verse 20, and the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's almost 200 miles. That's where we get our information. And the day has arrived. The day when Christ judges his enemies, takes over the earth as rightful owner, and saves his people. Why? Well, verse 4 of chapter 63 answers the question, why? This is the king speaking. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. This was always his plan. And then we have a conclusion to the matter in verse 6. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And Jesus Christ, splattered with the blood of his enemies, will come triumphantly wearing the blood of his enemies into Jerusalem. And Joel chapter 3 tells us the first thing that he's going to do. What's the victorious king going to do? Joel 3 verse 16, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And how loud will this roar be? And the heavens and the earth quake. This is the roar of the lion of Judah that says, I am back and I have won. And I don't know if you've ever heard anybody yell loudly enough to cause earthquakes, but you will. You will hear that. The Lion of Judah standing on the walls of his city roaring that he is the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords. But when did that conquest begin? Remember all those citizens coming home, being gathered? Remember you as the Gentile church, you you will return with Christ after having been brought to him in the rapture? When did the conquest begin? The conquest began when he bought all of his citizens, he purchased them at the cross. He purchased his own kingdom. He bought you at the cross so that his kingdom might be filled with worshipers, those that he rescued from sin and death. Well, our admonition tonight is to pray for the king's return. You know what the last words of Jesus Christ are in the Bible? Don't look. Surely I am coming soon. Those are his last words. You know what the last prayer in the Bible is? Don't look. Come, Lord Jesus. And so, what is our precedent for praying for the king's return? Because the king's return was the topic of his last words, and the king's return is the last prayer in Scripture. Thus, it should be an important prayer for us as well. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Our Father, we thank you for this clear text. 
which as we've, as we've worked our way through Isaiah just becomes easier and easier to understand, more and more clarity given to us. We have repeated for us over and over again that Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And our right response ought to be to prepare for his coming as a believer, to live lives that we're proud of in the sense that we are obeying the Lord and we humbly acknowledge our dependence on him and for the unbeliever. There will be no excuse because the warning was given so many times that Christ is coming and the day of judgment is on its way and so that when the unbeliever stands before Christ, Romans 3 says that every mouth will be closed. No one will give a defense. There is no defense. The books will be opened and the sickening, sinful lives, the deeds, the words, the thoughts of every wicked person will be exposed, will be publicly read, publicly proclaimed, and public sentence will be given a sentence of eternity away from Christ and in the lake of fire. And so we are so thankful for your graciousness. You have warned and warned and warned and warned. Might anyone hearing this message who does not know Christ heed that warning and come to faith so that we might be on the right side of eternity and not on that side of horror and judgment. And Lord, for those listening to this tonight who are in need of encouragement, that maybe the present moment is difficult and is very hard to bear, I pray that in our moments of quiet with you, we would look ahead to that day when the king returns and makes all things right, when every tear is wiped away, when the kingdom has come and the memories of our past pains and anguish really fade into eternity. And so, Lord, encourage our hearts, even as the Apostle Paul, when he told the Thessalonian church of the coming rapture and resurrection, he told them to encourage one another with these words. And so might we be encouraged by the definite, victorious future of our King, of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.